Father in heaven, I do thank you so much. We thank you that you have redeemed us, sinners in need of your grace. And Father, as we open this passage in Ruth, the story of your loving kindness toward this world, we do pray that we would soak it in, that it would take root, that it would grow within us and cause us to live lives that would reflect your great salvation to a world that is in need. In Jesus' name, amen. Charles Spurgeon once said that um, he could take his entire theology and he could surmise it in four words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. And that's a true statement for all Christians to share. It's a glorious confession. In 1995, probably a century after Spurgeon, John Murray wrote his definitive work, a work that I've entitled this message after, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It's a book that contains all that is necessary to know about atonement, what Christ did on the cross, what He accomplished, and then how it is applied by the Holy Spirit. It's filled with definitions and illustrations on atonement, effectual calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, preservation, union with Christ, and yes, glorification. It's a work I highly recommend. It is a work that's used by seminaries all over the world to train people up in the ministry. But then there's Richard Pratt that wrote a book, He Gave Us Stories. He spoke here at a missions conference several years ago. And in this book, He Gave Us Stories, is, it's just about that. God gave us stories. The story of Ruth. We all enjoy a good story. Children love stories. I used to read, Gail and I would both read to our kids when they were small. They loved to pick out a book and then have a story read to them, a read aloud. And then one day they, we were putting them away and they didn't like any of the books they had already had. They wanted something new. Tell us a story, Dad. And I said, hmm, okay. Do you like bears? Yes. All right, this story is about Ben Bear. And then I went on. I told a story. But I would incorporate the gospel into those stories. The kids loved them. They became more popular than the books that they had, although I'm not looking to write any. So God gives us stories. He gives us stories that are simple and easy to understand, but deep enough that it'll take a lifetime, yes, eternity, if you will, to plumb their depths. And that's true of Ruth. Ruth is a story of redemption. Redemption for us in everyday life. God is concerned with the mundane. He is. Everyday life is a major concern of His. This story in Ruth is personal both on a physical level and on a spiritual level. The story is the gospel in miniature. It's the grace of God in a very practical way. It's a story of love. Love between Boaz and Ruth. Love between Ruth and Naomi. 
But it's more of a greater story of God's love for us. We call that hesed in the Hebrew. His loving kindness for us. As I said, this is simple to understand. Even a child can. But it is very, very profound. And it is so rich. Jacob has talked about this before. And this story is probably one of the greatest short stories ever written. You can read it through time and time and time again and get a new nugget. There's something that I stumbled across this week and I'm not really going to get into this. But this is just the, the artistry of the literature that we're given in this story. There's three main characters in it. There's Naomi, there's Ruth, and there's Boaz. And they enter the stage, if you will. The curtain's pulled back in that order. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. You get to chapter 4 and the order is reversed. It's Boaz, then Ruth, then Naomi. And you can't help but ask yourself why. It's because God's redeeming Hesed, His redeeming loving kindness, has reversed the course of these three people's lives. And so as they enter in, all having some sort of need, those needs are met and their lives are forever changed. That's what Christ does for us. He meets us at our need and He reverses the courses of our lives. Instead of headed for the city of destruction, we're now headed, hidden, headed for the celestial city, eternal life with God. Now it's important that we understand this story not only at a personal level, but it is a much grander level. We should never limit God and His purposes, His providence that moves forward. To think of it as only happening to me, one person, in one place, during one point of time. That's easy for us to do as humans because that's the way we live life. We're in one place, at one time, generally doing one thing. But that's not how God works. Sometimes we get into situations in life and think, God, why is this happening? What are you doing here? Those are good questions to ask. But we so easily focus on ourselves and we miss the bigger picture. And that's what God is trying to teach us through Ruth. That there is a much, much bigger picture. As I said earlier, God is intimately aware of all of us. He's deeply concerned with our welfare. But His providential purposes, which include me, include us, do not center on us. As if, we, as if He is the one that's doing the things with me in an isolated way and ignoring the rest of creation. God is the ultimate multitasker. Because He is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, His purposes integrate with people and places all over the world. They crisscross simultaneously through a vast number of situations and a vast number of lives. As we saw in our passage of meditation, working all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And so this is where we catch up with Ruth now going into chapter 4. 
we were left with a cliffhanger back in three. You know, Ruth goes and uncovers his feet and lays at Boaz's feet. And there's that interchange and Ruth makes the proposal, a proposal of marriage. Boaz says, all these things I'll do for you. But wait, (laughs) there is another Redeemer. There's one closer than myself. Here's what I'll do for you. I will guarantee that I will not rest until this matter is taken care of. You will be redeemed one way or the other. And so Ruth goes back home. But I think both Ruth and Boaz both probably have the same thing going through their head. I believe they truly love one another. That they're drawn to one another. Not because of outward appearance. It's because the passage, the book as a whole says, this is a worthy man and this is a worthy woman. They see the value of one another because they have been redeemed in Christ. And they've got to be scratching their head going, what's going on? Is this going to ruin the happily ever after? How are we going to work this out? There's an obstacle in the way. What do we do when we come upon obstacles? How do we handle those? You know, the passage that is uh, right before Ruth, the last verse of Judges, says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When an obstacle comes your way, how do you handle it? Do you lean on your own understanding? Do do you go, I got this. This will fix it. (laughs) We we saw Naomi do that. Did we not? When she goes, ooh, I'm going to be a matchmaker here. I know how to bring these two together. Ruth, listen to this plan. I got it. Or or do we stop? Do we contemplate? Do we ask the reasonable questions? God, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? What do you look to accomplish through this? How is this going to glorify Christ and edify His church. It's bigger than me. That's the whole point. It's bigger than me. How am I going to handle it? Well, God by His grace gives us means. He gives us prayer. He gives us the Word of God. Those are the things that direct us. Those are the things that are directing Boaz. That's why he's called a worthy man. Everything he does throughout is in integrity. It's ethical and it's biblical. I can only imagine Boaz probably stuck out like a sore thumb in this little town of Bethlehem. You know, they've had a famine and now God visits the people and then the bread comes again and now they're harvesting but remember, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's, there's still not a reformation in Bethlehem. It's, the seeds are being planted and it's starting to germinate. Boaz is a man of integrity and among a people that are probably not that way as well. They, they probably looked at him like goody two-shoes. Didn't really want to have much to do with him. But Boaz wants to do the right thing. He wants to be a man of integrity. 
He wants to do things God's way. God's providence, as I said earlier, is integrated. It's like a symphony. It's like an opus that's being composed and about to be delivered. He wants to play his little part in it. Boaz does. There's an aspect in life within God's kingdom that is like this. We do actions and efforts. And then God does His part as well. Sinclair Ferguson says it's like this. Life is like this. In England, hedges are common. And they're quite large. And they have to be trimmed. And they'll do it as a two-man job. One, one person came, brings shears and he's just cutting and going along. He's vigorously working and moving in one direction. And then another man comes behind him and he shapes and manicures it all the way through. That's how our lives are. God has constructed a path for us to go and we'll go and we'll take those shears and we'll cut, but He shapes the hedges as well. And so this is what we see coming into chapter 4. God is providentially working all the way through. Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman and Boaz is the Psalm 1 man. And so we get to the gate. We open this scene. Boaz knows he wants to put this to rest. He wants to bring this about. But he's probably a little bit anxious on the inside. (laughs) He's probably a little bit nervous. Saying, how can I get this to go my way? I want Ruth. I want to redeem her. But there's an obstacle in the way. But Lord, I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to do it your way. And so he goes to the gate. Now the gate of the city was like the court. The courthouse. Where people would come and they would speak about the issues of the day and they would take care of business. Even legal issues would happen there. And they would be decided because that's where the elders of the city, those who oversaw the city, would make decisions. And so that's where Boaz goes. He goes to the gate and he sits down and behold the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. The author uses that word behold again to capture capture our attention. It says, here's providence working yet again. Boaz just happens to sit down and here comes the man. And Boaz says to him, turn aside, friend. Sit down. That word for friend is not, really shouldn't be translated that way. I mean, that's, that's not a bad translation. In the Hebrew, it's a little rhythmic rhyming phrase. Poloni almoni. What it means is Mr. So-and-so. It's a way of recognizing someone without mentioning their name. And so here's Boaz about to confront the one that is the obstacle between him redeeming Ruth. He says, uh, Mr. So-and-so. Hey, pal. Hey, buddy. Come on over here. This becomes very significant. We we know the names in Ruth have meaning. Naomi is pleasant. Elimelech is my God is king. Malon 
was sterile. Kilion was spent. Boaz is in his strength, in God's strength. All these words, all these names have meaning. So what does it say about this one that is the Redeemer, first in line? He's nameless. He will be like Orpah in one, chapter one. He is going to fall off the pages of Scripture and be forgotten forevermore. He's going to miss out on the covenant blessings of the kingdom of God. And we'll know why in a moment. He is a man with no name. But he does sit down and so Boaz goes on to invite ten elders. Ten other men. Ten elders or ten men is what was required to be a quorum to have a synagogue to make decisions about the people or for the people of God. So Boaz calls a session meeting and he's got a quorum. And so they sit down and now Boaz is about to lay forth his plan. But his plan, like I said, is not his own. It's it's a plan of integrity. It's a plan that is following the Word of God. He will bring up the whole idea of leveret marriage, the leveret law, That's in Deuteronomy 25 that we talked about last week. And so he sits in front of Mr. So-and-so. And he starts out. He says, Naomi has come back. She's come back from Moab. And she's in a pretty desperate place. You know, she's trying to figure out how she's going to rework the rest of her life out. She doesn't have the means. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have sons. She needs to sell her parcel of land. He said the land belonged to her husband, Elimelech. And so, he says, I thought I'd tell you, as a brother, as a friend, as a fellow elder in the city, and then he gives him an imperative. He says, so buy it if you're going to buy it. Don't wait. In the presence of all these elders here and everybody else that's around, buy it. And if you won't, tell me so I can buy it. I can redeem it. Mr. So-and-so thinks for a moment. All of a sudden, the wheels inside his head start turning. This, This guy acts more like a businessman than someone that's part of the family of God. He's thinking, what a coup. (laughs) I have an opportunity here to pick up a parcel of land and and all I got to do is take care of a widow. She can't possibly be able to live that long. There's no other heir. I'm going to grow my land. And, And in the meantime, I can plant seeds and I can harvest. I can make a profit off of that and that profit will far out, ex, out exceed what it will cost me to feed her and to care for her, put a roof over her head. He, he sees this as a coup. It's like buying a stock at a low price knowing it's going to go up. So he goes, I'll buy it. But like a chess match, <laughs> like a poker game, Boaz has his pieces. He has his cards. He's doing it with integrity. He's being ethical about it, but he's got his ace in the hole. 
He's got that one last move to play on the chessboard. And so here he plays it. He said, uh, Mr. So-and-so, um, one more thing. Oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from Naomi, you also buy Ruth the Moabite to be your wife. The widow of the dead. I can only imagine Mr. So-and-so's face. There was an old TV series years ago. Forget the name of the series, but he, something would happen and he'd say, what are you talking about, Willis? Um, I, I, I could see him come across it that way and go, what, what are you talking about? I got to marry a Moabite? Not an Israelite? Um, really? I pass. I'm out of here. You, you want to buy it? You take it. I, I'm, I'm not doing that. Why? Because that means that there will be the possibility of an heir. A, a son. Which means the price he's paying now, he's never going to get it back. He won't profit from this. He can redeem Naomi, but that land will go to somewhere else, someone else later on down the line. There's no way he can profit enough out of this to make up for it. So he says, no, nope, I'm out. I, I, I don't want to marry her. I don't want to take her. What this Redeemer is saying is unfathomable. Redeemers were to pay the price for another. Whether it was property, whether it was take, to bring someone out of slavery that sold themselves into indentured servitude, he's not willing to pay the cost. That's staggering. No wonder he's going to be the man with no name. So, he says, you do it. He delivers the right over to Boaz. He doesn't want this. It will impair his own inheritance, which means it'll ruin it. It'll exterminate it. He could lose it all. And so there's an ancient custom that takes place here at the city gate. And it's written in a form that makes you think that by the time the author writes this, that this custom has passed. So there's a custom for exchanging a transaction where one drew off a sandal and gave it to another. And so Mr. So-and-so takes his sandal off and he gives it to Boaz. Now it's interesting, most commentators believe this looks back to Joshua chapter 1 verse 3. In the promise that was given to Joshua as he's taking in to conquer the land. So the context is land. It says, every place where, your soul, where the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you as I promised Moses. It's a deliverance of a promise. And so Boaz gratefully takes the sandal. And now comes the blessing. 
in verse 9, you see it shift the whole scene to almost a great cloud of witnesses here. He said before all the elders, Boaz, you are witnesses today. I have bought this land from Naomi. All that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to his sons, and also Ruth. I have bought her to be my wife, publicly declaring his marriage to her. And it says to perpetuate the name of the dead. That word for perpetuate is so interesting because it really means to resurrect. To, to, To bring that name out of meaningless, out of unworthiness, out of death, and raise it. That's what the redemption of Christ does for us. God gives us a new name. He resurrects us spiritually. And so he says, you are all witnesses this day. It's amazing. The shadows and types that get pulled up into this when he's talking about this redemption of this wife. I can't help but think here about Adam in Genesis chapter 2. What is it? What does God say about Adam? He brings all creation by him and and can't find a helpmate for Adam. And so he casts him to a deep sleep. He pulls out a rib, he fashions Eve. And when Adam awakes, there's Eve. God's delivered to him. In like fashion, Boaz is asleep on the threshing floor. The cloak is pulled back and Eve, and he's startled and he wakes up and there is God delivering Ruth to Boaz. God has predestined these two to be together. By His providence, He has worked out for Ruth to be the wife of Boaz. Now here's the amazing thing. You have to get Boaz, I mean Ruth, from Moab to Bethlehem. How are you going to do that? Here's another amazing thing. Limelech and Naomi decide on their own to leave Judah, to leave Bethlehem, to seek greener pastures that is more than likely sinful behavior. And yet God. But God can even use the sinful actions of men and women to bring about His providence. If not that, He would have gotten Ruth there another way. But God was going to do that. Why? Because the bigger picture. There is a covenant promise that was made to Abraham and to his seed. That seed would be Christ. But there were seeds all along the way that needed to come to fruition. And the child that Pastor Jacob will talk about next week is one of those seeds. And it will come through Ruth. It is amazing to see this. And it becomes a blessing to Boaz.
How is it a blessing? How is it a blessing to Boaz? We don't learn a whole lot about Boaz. But we do know some things about Boaz. He is much older than Ruth. He refers to her as a daughter, meaning that there's quite an age gap. The text doesn't tell us if he's married or not married, but one can't help but believe he's not married. So where is his seed? Naomi talks about going away full, having a husband and having two sons. They all die and she comes back empty. Boaz is empty. He has no wife. He has no child. What will happen to his inheritance? This is where the blessing comes in. God is going to bless this Redeemer by redeeming him as well. He will bring that to fruition. Why? Because of the covenant made with Abraham in 12. I will make your name great. I will make a great nation of you from your offspring so that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. There again is the big picture. And so we see in verses 11 and 12 this great cloud of witnesses that are there and they break out in a public blessing. And they say in unison, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, your house, Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Here's an outsider. Here's a Moabite. Here's one of the last people on earth that you would think would come into the church. And yet, This blessing is for her to be just like what would be women pillars of the church, Rachel and Leah. Those whose offspring ended up building up. And now they're going to bring someone in from the outside, blessed in that way. They pronounce a blessing upon Boaz as well to be worthily received and that his name would be renowned. That'll come to fruition next week with Pastor Jacob. Forever he will be known as the grandfather or great-great-grandfather of King David in the line of David. Memorialized, if you will. And then there's something that's interesting that takes place in here. In verse 12, the text becomes a little bit, what? May may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Tamar? This blessing was going so good. You're talking about Rachel, and you're talking about Leah, and you're talking about Israel, and the sons of Jacob, and the nation. You know the story of Tamar. (laughs) She married a son. She's an outsider, like Ruth, the Moabite. She marries one of... Judah's sons, that son dies. Through leveret marriage, gives another son, that one dies. Judah's going, I don't know about giving another son here. (laughs) It's a high risk with this woman. 
And so Tamar is waiting. But Tamar gets impatient or impatient. She decides to do what's right in her own eyes. You know the story. She dresses up just like Ruth dressed up. Both looking to be with someone and have a child. But the way Tamar goes about it is all wrong. She dresses like a harlot. She meets up with Judah. She becomes pregnant. Illegitimate child. Conceived in a sinful way. Why? Why does God do this? Why does God put these things into this bigger picture story? You should know the answer. It's because Jesus is the friend of sinners. There's no saints. We only become saints because He has died on the cross to redeem sinners. Who else is He going to use? We're all sinners. Matthew one twenty one, following the great genealogy that is given there that talks about great sinners, talks about Rahab, talks about Tamar, talks about Bathsheba, talks about David who killed Uriah the Hittite. All of them sinners. But 121 says, you shall, be call, you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. The bigger picture. This is God's hesed for us, His loving kindness of us. It is a love greater than that of Ruth for Naomi. It's a love greater than that of Boaz for Ruth. It's a love that was demonstrated in the greatest way on the cross when God gave His own Son for sinners like you and like me. This is the bigger picture. This is Jesus died for me. It is God providentially working out His plan of redemption to bring forth the seed, Galatians 3.16 talks about, which is the Christ, to bring forth redemption and to accomplish it and to apply it to a multitude of people. This is God's symphony. It's God's opus. Are you willing to play your part? In 1995, there was a movie, Mr. Holland's Opus. If you know the story, Richard Dreyfuss is the character. He plays Glenn Holland. He longs and yearns to write a symphony. So he figures he'll take a job as a teacher. By doing so, he should have enough time to work on his symphony and pay attention to his family. And as you watch this 30-year career in teaching take place, you see that he pours everything into teaching. Starts new programs, starts a marching band, gives individual lessons, wants to help people to appreciate music, he, he becomes distant from his family and even his son. Later on, his son who is deaf, he does manage to restore that relationship. And you get to the climax, to the end, to the closing of this film. 
And you see him after a 30-year career go to the principal's office and the principal says, we've got to cut back. There, there's going to be no arts, no music. He makes a passionate plea before the board. Don't do this. But the answer is still no. And as he leaves, he is greeted by one who takes him down into the auditorium. If you've seen the film, you know the scene. He goes in and the auditorium is full of people. All his former students. One of them, one that wanted to learn to play the clarinet and wasn't very good. She's now the governor of Oregon. She delivers a speech. And he said, Mr. Holland, this is your symphony. This is your opus. The lives of these people that you've changed. What is your symphony? What is your opus? Do you see the bigger picture of God in this? Do you see how you're supposed to play your part in the whole thing? Or do you look at this as what's in it for me? Like Mr. So-and-so. That, that you only want to get involved if you benefit from whatever it is. There were people who poured out their time, their talents yesterday to try to reach out to the community, to compose a little tune, a little gospel tune. That's what each and every one of us are to be working on. Do you appreciate the gift that is so great that you have received, the redemption of your soul that Christ accomplished through His atonement and the Holy Spirit applied to your lives. I pray that you do, that you'll be about the symphony of God, playing your part to bring others from the outside in. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are such a great conductor, that you sovereignly and providentially work out your plan of salvation, that you do it in a manner that is using all kinds of people in all kinds of places, simultaneously bringing your plan about all for your glory to save those who are lost through redemption in Jesus Christ. Pray that we would be mindful of that and be about the business of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.